Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Brett Chisholm. I'm Josh Evans. And on today's episode, our fan DV's content recommendation, Casa de Papel, inspired me to look into some real-life heists that are muy muy loco, ay ay ay. And then Josh keeps things cheerful with some content pulled straight from reality. This war movie he's talking about has more landmines than Cracker Barrel has hot sauces. Seriously, guys, it's a bit of a doozy. You know Josh loves some dark, violent stuff. But don't worry, there's a bright side. Talking about shiny new limbs. Get ready for Kilo 2 Bravo. Movies, shows, and video games. Podcast books and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Brett. Josh, Josh, Josh. Brett, Brett, Brett. How, <laughs> I, how are you? Uh, I had Cracker Barrel for a uh, late lunch, so I cannot complain. Living like a millionaire. I actually have a question about Cracker Barrel, and I feel the same way about TGIFs, or thank God it's Fridays. Yes. So I'm not you know, an expert, but I'll, <laughs> I'll try to answer your question. Every time I go into one of these certain types of restaurants they have all their knickknacks on the wall and i just imagine when you open up a cracker barrel you just get sent like 15 boxes (laughs) oh no (laughs) and it's all the same shit but it's it's a bunch of quiche yeah but it's there it's everything looks so professionally or, or i don't know maybe not professionally but it looks like so perfectly curated to give a certain type of styling uh you know you, you know what i'm talking about Help how many boxes here. do you think they get of the little golf ball uh golf ball peg jump games you know what i'm talking about the golf you jump ball? the golf ball uh i guess the golf ball pegs whatever they're called i'm not is a this golf a, man is this like a game on the it's table? a cracker barrel All yeah right. it's always I on the it's always on there. the table and you like oh. have to jump it over and the goals to only have one left at the end i imagine they probably get at least eight boxes of those because they're <laughs> everywhere. I just, who's, who's buying these like old timey portraits and, uh, you know, um, like farming equipment and wooden rifles and like w- this weird stuff that seems like it only belongs in like the middle of the South in like a field abandoned or on the wall of a cracker barrel. Well, Obviously, William Cracker Barrel, the founder of Cracker Barrel, chooses all of those things by hand. His own personal tastes really lean heavily on what Cracker Barrel looks like. I'm sure it's all modeled off the first one. Like there was, you know, the first TGIF and then everyone after that is just modeled after the first one. You don't ever eat Cracker Barrel when you're at home. So I'm assuming you're working right now. I am. I am. Yeah. And I am in the South. I'm in Louisiana. There you go. So William Cracker Barrel's hometown. <laughs> don't quote us on that. We have no idea. <laughs> where we're, yeah, we don't want to get sued. We don't know where old Bill actually is from. That is true. We do not know. I said I was not an expert, and I think that has just shined through with all of these <laughs> answers I gave you. Oh, I do have something to tell you, though. So, you know I like hot sauce with my meals, right? Indeed. So, I uh, instead of just ordering a side of hot sauce with my food that I ordered online to pick up, 
uh, you know, they have that shop at Cracker Barrel as well. And I said, oh, do you have any hot sauce? Well, not only did they have hot sauce, my friend. I'm going to hold this up on the camera, see if you can see this. Whoops. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> it's like a, a blister pack of, what is that, like 20 different hot sauce flavors? It's exactly right. Wow, you have a you have a good eye. It's it's called um, let's see here, hot sauce flavors of the world. It's a twenty pack sampler. It's like an oral tour of <laughs> all the things that Spice. can burn you in this world. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so that so you know, Cracker Barrel really pulled through. Now I'm gonna my next week of my life. Every meal is just gonna be a different uh, spicy sauce. Even your. Midnight snacks? Absolutely. Nice. Especially my midnight snacks. Got to get those nightmares in somehow. So what do you got for off top this week? Oh, are we just getting right into it? Cause I, Let's do it, buddy. I wanted Unless to, you got something else. Well, I wanted to ask you about your muscles. How's well, that coming I mean, besides, along? Besides rippling, <laughs> they're fine. Yeah, man, I've been feeling pretty good, actually. I've been... Uh, actually, I feel like it's probably the best I've felt in maybe 10 years. Wow, because I've been I've been just doing so much exercise and strengthening core muscles. It's great, man. I got my TRX set up in the basement, which is like these suspension straps, and then I do all these like body weight training drills. And yeah, man, I can feel myself getting stronger. It's great. It's uh, it's really changed my life. That's awesome, man. Well, if you ever want to backslide a little bit, hang out with me at the Cracker Barrel. <laughs> <laughs> Great for the dad bod. That's right. All right. Uh, so the off top, you know, I um, it's kind of ties into my content circuit because I got really sucked into this show that uh, DV recommended that I've mentioned a few times. It's that Spanish language show, Money Heist. Yeah. Um, the original title is actually Casa de Papel, the House of Paper. Mm. Um, but it's it's uh, you know it's kind of dramatic. It's pretty delicioso. Um, if you will, <laughs> which by the way, it's it's kind of amazing because Netflix they acquired the exclusive global streaming rights, and they, it had no marketing campaign. Uh, they basically just like, oh, we just want you know this looks bingeable. I don't know. I don't know how the decision making process at Netflix go. Maybe a computer runs anything. Jimmy the computer is. <laughs> <laughs> All corporations name their computers these days. That was a throwback to our last episode. Anyway, so it's interesting. So the writer for this show, the way he put it is that Netflix basically put this into a pile of series that they have. And it was akin to sticking it in a sock drawer that you never look in and in which only the algorithm can rescue you. But four months later of this show being added to Netflix, the series became the most watched non-English language series on Netflix. Pretty amazing. That is quite the sock drawer pool right there. <laughs> and I mean, it's I, I attribute it as being just very bingeable. Um, but it got me thinking, were there ever any really elaborate or complicated heists similar to this? But Ooh, interesting. IRL, which means in real life. Um, Earl, if you've read <laughs> Ready Player Two, that's what they call it. The Earl, Earl, really? Yeah, I like it. So, um, you know, this is this is kind of something that I I kind of want to get your thoughts beforehand because 
you know, we know that Hollywood exaggerates a lot or sometimes they just flat out lie, but there are some types of content that I know you consume as well as I consume. Specifically, I'm thinking of my true crime podcast, my true crime shows, last podcast on the left or Sword and Scale, uh, which literally their tagline is something like uh, a show all about the the fact that monsters are real. Um, you know, there these some of these outlandish gruesome horror movies i'm shocked to find out could actually be real right so what what's your thinking on is something like money heist or if you haven't seen it oceans 11 do you think that kind of thing really happens in real life you know the the closest thing i've ever heard of was i think it it was called evil genius on netflix about the woman this is kind of like a cross between a heist and a saw movie so this this woman created this elaborate like goose chase for the cops to go on. And honestly, I can't remember what the ultimate goal was, but it, uh, it kind of ended with this guy with a, like an explosive collar around his neck, robbing a bank. And there are all these moving parts. And I just remember, uh, thinking how much that seems like something out of a movie. I mean, that was kind of a genre mashup. It had a lot of heist elements and there was a lot going on with like this bank robbery, but also like the thing around his neck. And then like the, the trail of clues seemed very saw. And so that definitely seemed like something out of a film jumping over into real life to me. That's a good one. Yeah. I didn't think of that one. That that's actually kind of a mix of heist and true crime. Yeah. Um, well, so I typed this into Google, uh, specifically looking for the, the, uh, a heist that's like the show. And I found this article. This my um, source for this is an article called Seven Real Life Heists That Were So Crazy You'll Forget All About, quote, Money Heist, quote. Uh, this You won't believe number four. <laughs> this comes from scoopwoop.com. So you know it's good. My and homepage. So there's seven of them. I'm just going to cover, for sake of time, the top four. But I think they're kind of interesting. So the number one slot was uh, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. This was in Boston in 1990. So this is during St. Patrick's Day. So they definitely plan this while people are, uh, you know, having a good time, maybe drinking some some, uh, beer, liquor. But these two thieves were dressed as Boston police officers. They went into the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, and they stole 13 works of art. Rembrandt, Ooh. Manet, not to be confused with Monet, a few Degas. Uh, it was estimated at $500 million total. That's quite the haul right there. And it is still unsolved. It is actually Ooh. known as one of the greatest unsolved American crimes of all time. <laughs> is there a documentary about this now on Netflix? I, ha- I have no idea. I know there's a new documentary. I'd have to look up what it is, but it's about an art heist. Oh, and, uh, I think it yes. just came out. I haven't watched it yet, though. Isn't it called Art Heist or something? <laughs> it could be. Maybe that's the title. I My thought... brain just passed right over that. It's not even an option of what it could be called. <laughs> so the second one uh, in this article is the unsolved case of the stolen $6 billion in post-Saddam Iraq. So this one solved going on here. Sounds like some good heisters. Well, this one says in all the chaos that followed Saddam's fall, 
With both private contractors and U.S. military forces trying to gain control of the region, someone stole $6 billion worth of money that the U.S. Congress had sent to be spent in Iraq. The Special Inspector General for Iraq Reconstruction, Stuart Bowen, said he couldn't account for the money and called it the largest theft of funds in national history. I'm going to look into this more because $6 billion seems uh, a little bit on the high end of cash that you t- and i feel like it's probably our tax dollars here this didn't come out of uncle sam's pocket it came out of our pocket well isn't that where all of their money comes from yeah that's true we are uncle sam europe maybe you buddy <laughs> renegade over here you know that speaking of movies reminds me of another movie uh three kings mark Wahlberg and uh george clooney where they are they're in iraq and they're like trying to steal the iraqi gold oh. and it's a it's like a wartime heist movie Oh, yeah, I'm going to have to check that out. It's pretty good. Yeah. That movie was kind of like, I guess it was maybe early 2000s, but that movie always seemed like kind of an MTV music video style film. It was just like real frenetic and had like a lot of strange effects in it and stuff. It was kind of like, it was like a really stylized movie, but I really liked that movie. That was something that I was totally into growing up. Hmm. It's, it sounds familiar. I'll have to look that one up again. Three Kings, right? I think it's on Netflix. Okay. Um, well, moving on here, there's the Great Train Robbery of England. This happened in 1963. It was £2.3 million. Pounds. Uh, that's $40 million in today's money. Um, this was stolen from a post office train in England. It was a 15-member gang. They did not even use a gun. So this Didn't was they a, divert the train they or did. something? They yeah, did. They, th- they tampered with railway track signals. They stopped a Royal Mail night train traveling from Glasgow to London, and it was carrying letter parcels and large amounts of cash. And they actually would have gotten away with it, except they decided to play a game of Monopoly in a barn with all the <laughs> stolen cash, and they left fingerprints all over the place. It's always Monopoly or Scooby-Doo. If it weren't for those two things, you'd get away with everything. Scooby-Doo is good. He is the Sherlock of Earl. (laughs) Earl. In real life. Um, And finally, I I have to mention this one. D.B. Cooper's Leap of Faith was number four on this list. This is in 1971. It says, D.B. Cooper, a favorite among conspiracy theorists like us, the Flat Earth Game Stonk crew, (laughs) it it does not say this in the article Um, (laughs) it's like they knew you'd be reading this (laughs) it says db cooper performed the only unsolved air piracy act in 1971 he hijacked of course a boeing 727 extorted two hundred thousand dollars and then leapt out of the plane with the money somewhere between portland and seattle never to be seen again the case is active in the fbi even after 40 years Till now, no one has been able to identify who the thief was. And yes, he is referenced to in Prison Break. Um, so, Josh, this is just the beginning. Uh, you can check out the article. I'm going to post it, the, the link in the show notes, um, if you want to check out the other ones. But honestly, I mean, my faith has been restored. I feel like they're in really... Criminals? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, there's possibilities in real life. Earl to pull off the perfect crime. So this is a message out there for, for all you would be criminals. Uh Oh, you know, (laughs) disclaimer, this show is entertainment. 
If you're if you've been feeling a little DB cooped up after 2020, oh, <laughs> I just want to say it's 2021. It's time for a new year, new you. I mean, Josh is working out, you know. So why don't all of you just go ahead and just start watching this Netflix show, writing down some ideas. And honestly, I hope y'all's heist is filled with all the sexy Spaniards and the heart racing tension and all the moral ambiguity of. Casa de Papel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Plan a dream heist, everyone. It's not illegal to act on it. I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> uh, so what are your thoughts on D.B. Cooper? I am of the mindset that that dude died in the Pacific Northwest wilderness. There is no way he was outfitted for survival. I mean, they said that he was wearing like loafers and he had just like his business suit on and he's jumping out at i guess i guess they lowered the ramp for him at like ten thousand feet but he's jumping out to like this like crazy whipping rainstorm in an old school round parachute there's no way he survived well you know i actually um at the drop zone uh let's see i think it was, i was jumping like three days ago or something like that i met a really cool human being who i, I actually like got to the drop zone everybody's all geared up ben started yelling brett get your gear on man they're waiting for it it was 6 30 in the morning i i was like whoa like these they're not messing around like um so anyway did a jump started chatting i knew everybody else on the load but this girl was i, I had met her before she's a pilot from idaho and i remember talking to her because she has a four-wheel camper pop-up but then later in the day, come to find out, she used to be a smoke jumper for the National Forest. And it actually came up because um, I need to get my B license. And we talked about water training and jumping rounds. And I said, oh, I've, I've actually base jumped with a round parachute into water. So I'm, I think that counts as my water training. But uh, another uh, jumper, a friend of mine at the drop zone said, oh, well, Ashley has 96 round jumps. And I said, that's, that's a lot. You must be in the Air Force or Absolute something. insane. And nope, Forest Service Jumper did 96 jumps into fires and forests. It has like multiple intentional tree landings. Her, wow. Uh, she was skydiving with a knee brace on because I guess her knee is absolutely destroyed. She has had multiple surgeries, torn ACLs. I'm sure so, it'd be easy to hike out of the Pacific Northwest with that kind of injury. Yeah, so what I'm saying is, you would have to give me more than two hundred thousand um, dollars to jump around at night into the Pacific North. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, he's dead. I mean, I guess in nineteen seventy one, the that money's worth a lot more now. But uh, but one more thing I want to say about DB Cooper, though, I we should save this for another off top because we got to dive into this more. I remember vaguely a Reddit post of somebody saying their mama or something had like a you know husband or it was like her step granddad or something and on his deathbed confessed that he was db cooper and there of was course, some, yeah some evidence to suggest this you don't buy it i mean the the anonymous random reddit posters <laughs> mom's great grandpa that that line of evidence seems questionable to me uh but i think i mean I think that kind of goes along with any just legendary 
story like db cooper like there's going to be somebody that wants to take the credit or just wants to spin the narrative a little bit like i think a lot about uh you know people look back on maybe like historical events or maybe things from far in the past and we always look at things like say like uh carvings in a cave or something we always look at them with complete honesty like these people carve something that looks like they're fighting a woolly mammoth or it looks like there's a spaceship or something. And we always think like, there's no way that they could have made that up. But if you look at what we do today, 99.99999% of everything that we create is made up. It's, it's just like such a, such a strong representation of human creation is just these created works of art. And I think it's weird looking back on on uh, historical occurrences to, to think that people wouldn't be making stuff up then. Like, I, I don't think you can, this is not the same thing as some guy claiming he's D.B. Cooper, but it just kind of got me thinking about how much trust we put in things just because they're old. And it could totally be, so many things could be, just be people's imagination running wild in the past. And with D.B. Cooper, somebody wants to claim that. Somebody wants some kind of, you know, moment in the spotlight or to, you know, maybe throw their family off the scent of them being like a real bad great grand dad or whatever this guy was. And it's like, oh, maybe if I tell them I'm D.B. Cooper, they'll just, uh, that'll be what they remember me for instead of all the times I neglected them my entire life. Isn't there some sort of, um, I don't know, system in the body or the brain that prevents you from lying on your deathbed? It's when all the truth comes out. Yeah, I think Jesus said that actually. <laughs> Well, Reddit was right about the stock market. They were right about the earth being flat. I just don't <laughs> doubt them about D.B. Cooper. So, Well, there it is. That sounds like <laughs> science to me. So, Josh, what's on your uh, content circuit? Well, I sent you something I've been obsessed with lately. And uh, it takes a little bit of explanation. It's a promotional film created to promote a video game from nine years ago called Far Cry 3. And uh, if that doesn't sound interesting, then you should just click the link anyways because what it it's a, uh, it's a film about the villain in Far Cry 3. His name is Voss Montenegro. And he's, I, I think he might be the, uh, you know, one of the earliest cases of just perfectly written and performed characters in video games. You know, I'd say maybe around... 10 years ago or so video game stories started getting really good. And this guy, Voss Montenegro, he's a, he's played by Michael Mando who is in better call Saul. He's nacho. He's also in uh, Spider-Man homecoming. He's the guy that becomes, well, they, they kind of allude to him becoming the scorpion. He's one of uh, vultures henchmen, but he's just this, this crazy charismatic bad guy. He's a, he's kind of like a pirate Lord in this film and it's called uh it's called far cry three experience the Voss show and uh kind of a quick breakdown is uh they're filming this kind of survivor show on this island with christopher mintzplatz uh, uh mclovin and he's just like this total asshole and he's like being all rude to his camera guy and they stumble onto Voss, who is this crazy maniacal psychopath and he's the first thing they see is 
him riding on the back of another uh, of another guy. This guy, he's like, oh, you're my horse, you're my horse. And the guy like collapses in exhaustion and they're kind of hiding in the bushes because they don't know what's going on. And then he looks at the, he looks at the, the horse man and he says, you were a lot of things in this life, but you were a better horse than you ever were a man. And then blows him away. It's just so disturbing. And the whole film just gets more psychotic from there. And the, it all kind of rests on Michael Mando's performance. Just the, such a, an awesome actor. But it got me thinking about like when you play a video game, the the violence that's happening, especially in an action game, is rarely ever scary because you're so empowered as the protagonist that you feel, you know, even if even if this guy I'm fighting is crazy, he's kind of like this caricature of a human, and I'm a essentially a one man army, so of course I'm going to take him down eventually. And this just shines a whole new light on how terrifying. these kind of scenarios would be in real life. So I'll link that in the show notes. I would highly recommend it for everyone. It's 30 minutes. It's expertly produced. Well, I would like to say as somebody that did play Far Cry 3 um, and remembered that character and really did think that performance was great, um, I thought it was going to be like a comedy video having McLovin in it. And (laughs) I hated every minute of it. I... (laughs) You watched I, Martyrs, Brett. I did, and I liked that movie. This this was somehow like... So what did you not like about this film? Uh, it was too disturbing and dark. It's disturbing. Yeah, and then I turned on my hotel TV, and the Joker was on. Oof. With, uh, you know, the new the new the newest iteration, iteration with uh, Robert De Niro and Joaquin Phoenix. And um, it's just, it's all too dark for me right now. <laughs> I would like to take back... Me watching that clip, please. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Brett. It's going to get under your skin. I've watched it three times in the last two days. Are you okay? What is wrong with you? <laughs> I, got, I got rippling TRX muscles, buddy. I'm doing better than ever. <laughs> I'm so glad you're fueled by psychopathy and uh, gruesome internet videos. Indeed. <laughs> That's my brain. Well, have you fit any threes into your schedule haven't played it but i've been pretty busy uh getting my outline together so it's uh it's something that i'm definitely going to be playing again you definitely got my uh you got my mind thinking about threes again but with the content circuit man it's a circuit i got to keep going until it comes back around you have to run and run on the circuit until you collapse indeed it's science (laughs) jesus approved well, uh, before we take a break, I do want to mention I um, because of our last conversation, I did get Jetpack Joyride in the content circuit. Nice, and uh, it is fun. But between every game, they try to get me to like buy things to upgrade oh, my no. jetpack, or they try to like push other gaming ads on me. So I'm sure Jetpack Joyride <laughs> has made a lot more money than Threes. But as a contentologist, it it really feels like a trash pack Joyride. Uh, (laughs) well your opinion is the most highly sought after on this planet you're a a phd in content well with that wonderful compliment let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and get into some content content? okay welcome back to the threes jetpack joyride clearing house of mobile platform games 
Am I doing Recently this right? rebranded. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna get that sweet, sweet advertisement money. Well, Brett. Yes. After our light-hearted romp through iPhone gaming last week. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I told you, I'm not, I, I already consumed too much dark content today. Oh, well, you may be pushing this one a little bit further down your content circuit. Maybe you'll never get to it, but I hope you do. You just know that I was going to go down a deeply disturbing route this week. I've got to balance the universe out somehow. Uh, you, are the gotta say, you are the yang to my yang, Josh. That I am. And i got to say, your yang last week, I think that was my favorite episode that we've ever recorded. <laughs> That was the most fun I've ever had on this show. So you know that I'm obsessed with military fiction and nonfiction. Uh, The nonfiction stories are some of the most intense and unbelievable things that have ever happened. And I love stories about the training that goes into honing a human into such an efficient, focused individual. And it's not just the action that I'm obsessed with. I love the efficiency that these stories put on display. And I also love the brotherhood in the stories. You know, anyone with a tight group of friends, a crew boss, if you will, you know how valuable that is to have people that you can depend on and people that you feel like share part of your brain. And, uh, you know, like you can, sometimes you can read these people's minds and that's like a very addictive feeling. And I love how that is so apparent in military stories, like maybe more than anywhere else. And I also love the heroics. Like I've got such a soft spot in my heart for a true hero, someone that like doesn't want to be a hero, but just kind of finds that deep within themselves whenever it's, whenever it's required. And regardless of what you think of the politics of the situation, war places humans into these scenarios where reluctant and accidental heroes emerge. It's people that were not looking for these opportunities, but nonetheless step up when their crewball needs them most. And that is some of the most inspiring stuff on the planet. And the movie I'm talking about today is a horrifying, deeply disturbing Brett right up your alley <laughs> example of heroics in the war zone. Does it have McLovin in it? Unfortunately not. <laughs> that would have maybe thrown off the realism just a bit. Do you notice how in that film, he's just like the worst at running? It's so funny. Yeah, well, I, th- I thought it was going to take a different turn when he um, shot everybody like accidentally and kind of like appeared to be an accidental badass, like you said. Like right at the start of that, he like, you know, left his friend, but then kind of doubled back and then sliced some guy and shot some. I was like, okay, here's the spin on this. McLovin's going to be a badass. That's not what happened. Spoiler alert. It's all about the Voss show. (laughs) So uh, this film I'm talking about today, this is a film where almost no combat, almost no accidental McLovin combat happens at all. (laughs) And, but it does depict what is quite possibly I think the most disturbing war scenarios I've ever seen on film. And it's about the heroes that were birthed from the, from this day. So this is a, it's called Kajaki, the true story, but it was released in North America as Kilo two Bravo. So this is a film that's available on Amazon. And this is a film that I passed over several times. Cause I was like, man, it just got like a guy kind of like slumped down on the cover. And it's like, I don't know what this is. I'm not interested in it. But I listened to this other podcast called Life and Death, and uh, he, it's uh, this guy from England. He interviews people that have had these crazy life and death scenarios, like Medal of Honor winners and stuff. And he interviewed one of these guys from Kajaki, and they they said uh, in the show notes, it said 
that it's quite possibly the most disturbing war movie ever made. And I was like, wow, that sounds exactly like something I need to tell Brett about. <laughs> so I went and checked it out and I was not disappointed. So this is a, it's a 2014 British war docudrama film directed by Paul Kattis and it's his feature debut. And it tells the story of the Kajaki Dam incident, which occurred on September 6, uh, 2006. This is in Afghanistan. And these British soldiers, uh, Mark Wright, who is kind of one of the most famous member, and uh, the members of the 3rd Battalion Parachute Regiment, which they call them 3rd Para. They're on this routine patrol, and they stumble into an old Soviet minefield. And it's about the horrific series of events that unfolds from them attempting to escape from this uh, it's just like a, a little low area in the ground that's just riddled with mines. And the, the troops of the third para, they disregard all safety preservation to put themselves into harm's way and attempt to extract their injured teammates, which results in more and more injuries. This is a really famous incident, but it's something I had never heard of. And this film was a real eye-opener for me about what mine use is like on the battlefield. Mm, interesting. So, so I don't want to go. This has, uh, this has um, like a hurt locker style. What do you call those bomb squad? Not really. Oh, no, these okay. are all guys that are, they are wholly unqualified to be disarming this minefield, which is why it's so scary. This is, this is really something that I think they knew that it was a possibility, but it's not like they're expert EOD guys. You know, they're not in any special equipment. It's just they're just walking through the desert and they stumble in this minefield. And then it's just the series of events that unfolds from there. And, and I don't EOD want to go, is, uh, it's not uh, explosive eggs ordinance. on deli sandwich. Oh, got it. Yeah. Oh, okay. I got to tell you this, uh, but I don't want to go too deep into the characters or the specifics of the story because this is a film. It's much better. The less, you know, I knew nothing going into it and I was not disappointed but it does. Uh, it's very good. It won a uh, best narrative film. It won uh, the BAFTA Scotland Award for best actor and the most coveted of awards. It won best producer, which is basically like saying the best guy with money. Yes, <laughs> and that is maybe the last lighthearted thing that I'll say in this episode. So cherish it, Brett. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I will. I will hold it close with my twenty pack of hot sauce. Later, when you're just like rocking, when I'm telling you about the oh, horrific God. finds, be like best producer. <laughs> so, you. are you are you going? You're saying, is this going to be spoiler free? Because you're saying I should watch this without any context. So, you're going to talk about the real life story or the movie? Uh, well, I'm going to talk about some of the things that uh, revolve around and maybe led up to the movie. Um, okay, and just some of the some of my thoughts that I had while watching it. Cause it really got me going down this rabbit hole of research. Okay. Interesting. So despite the prestigious best producer award, uh, the best person with money, this movie really is, it's like a true hidden jewel of filmmaking and it's a real tribute to the heroes that were involved. And what's so great about this film is how it eases you in like the first 30 ish minutes. You're, pretty much just following the daily lives of these British soldiers as they man this outpost near the Kajaki Dam. It seems totally boring, and uh, it's just bas- it's just the same thing day in, day out. They just happen to have guns while they're doing their, their menial jobs. And there's a little bit of action, but th- these are things that they are more than equipped to handle. Like there's, you know, they run into some things that they just kind of 
plow right through. And this was the first English speaking film that I felt like I needed subtitles for because their accents are so thick. And you know, I love some subtitles, but it was, it was strange knowing they were speaking English and not being able to understand them at first. This has happened to me watching British comedies. Yeah. I have bizarre experience. English subtitles on a, uh, on a English speaking film. It's absolutely. I don't know. Did Did this happen to you though? About halfway through the film, I was like, oh, I can turn these subtitles off now. Like my brain trained itself to identify the accent very quickly. Absolutely. In fact, I'm actually going through this um, at work right now because I, my last trip, I flew to Mexico, I flew to Honduras. And um, the way that our hot mic system works in the older 737s, I can't wear my. Um, A&R headphones, my headset for flying that I usually do. I'm just using the, you know, kind of junky headset that comes in the plane. And I really, really um, have to work hard to try to understand those accents for instructions. I'm, you know, sometimes I'm looking at the captain, like, did he say, you know, this altitude, this, this. And I know that there's just going to be like a flip that switches on and it's going to be fine because I went through this when I flew international cargo and I was flying into China all the time or I was flying into South Korea. It's, it's just difficult to understand until it isn't. It's like your brain just needs exposure to it. Yeah, it's crazy how adaptable the human mind is. And that was a really cool watching. This is a really cool example of how, how quickly your brain can train itself like write new neural pathways. Well, a lot of it is, is contextual, right? But also a big part of communication. Um, and from what I've learned about this is your expectation. So your expectation has a lot to do with, you know, what you hear, which can, it can be good because it can, if your brain, which is kind of this predictive machine, you know, if it's right, it's it's helping you and it's helping that processing, but you can't rely on the predictive nature of things when it comes to things like aviation. You need to make sure you're getting that information accurately. And if you're unsure, you have to ask again. And that's I frustrating. I thought you said do a barrel the, roll. <laughs> and that, you know, it's frustrating for the controller when you ask for, you know, ask them to repeat themselves, but sometimes you have to. And I'm hoping that I can pick up that accent. Um, you know, it's, it's loud in the cockpit and there's a lot of chatter. So you're, um, it's like, I'm retraining my ears to be honest, but yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. When you have to ask for, for a clarification, are you ever ever like, uh, do you mind speaking American, please? I don't say that (laughs) now because they're, they're already, they're already speaking English, the international language of uh, you know already going out of their way. It's pretty amazing for that you. Somehow the entire globe has conformed to a Western standard uh, when it comes to aviation. We were That's one what being a superpower is all about, Brett. We were one just hair away from all having to speak French if you wanted to be a pilot. Wow, it what? was fr- it was French or it was a English? Detour. What was the <laughs> Where, where was this fork in the road? Why was it so close? Well, at first, um, you know, and I, I, I haven't looked into this in a long time, so I could have my facts a little off here. But basically... You're a contentologist, the... <laughs> not a pilot historicalologist. Exactly. The Wright brothers took this flying machine invention to the American military, and the United States didn't have... They didn't want to have anything to do with it. They thought it was pretty neat, 
but they they said basically this is a toy, this is a novelty, this has you know uh, no bearing on um, the future of warfare. We're not interested. We dropped the ball on that one. Well, then the Wright brothers took it to the French, and they saw the potential in it. Um, and I don't remember exactly what happened, but if you look at a lot of the words for uh, you know aeronautics or empennage, aileron, I mean, a lot of aviation oh, yeah. is already French. But I mean, it really was, you know, the French, you know, they got it right away. But there's also some conjecture that the Wright brothers were not the first to uh, invent uh, powered flying machines. There was uh, a Brazilian that I think was like, there was like that simultaneous innovation happening. Yeah. Um, And I just don't know if he never got credit or he had like just too many failures right around the time. I kind of, I don't know much about this. They Edison him. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's interesting that it goes all the way back to the beginning. Like that's, that's where the split was when it came to the international language of aviation. It was almost Ah, French, buddy. Yeah, that's cool. All right, well, let's get back to Kilo 2 Bravo. So a little bit of the lead up of what happens. Uh, So these guys are on this overwatch position high on a hill and they see these Taliban thugs with a checkpoint where they're kind of shaking down the locals and they can't do anything from their position. They're entrenched, you know, a mile away. So they propose this fairly simple mission of pushing down the hill, get within sniping range and take these guys out. And on their patrol down the hill, they stumble into the minefield. And what's so great about this film is that it gives no indication about who's going to be hit who will be injured, or who will become an inadvertent hero. It's such a slow burn. They just ease you into it, and they pull you in before you even realize the level of danger. And they do a very convincing job of creating a case of a false, of sense, uh, a false sense of security. So it's very, it's very much like how the human mind reacts in dangerous situations. You know, acceptance is often the last thing your mind wants to do, and you'll do anything to convince yourself that you can continue along like normal. And that's kind of the the feeling that the movie gives you. That and that is just it's just such awesome filmmaking. And with war movies, I feel that the violence has a different feel than like say a horror movie. Like in a horror movie, the killer is like this evil vindictive presence. It's like their point is to inflict pain and they have no fear about that process, and that's what's so terrifying about it. In a war film, you kind of get the feeling that the enemy is like you in a lot of ways. You know, they may not want to be there. They might be scared or they miss their home or they're only doing this because they feel a drive to, you know, they need to protect their families or their rights, or maybe they're being forced to be there, you know, by their government. It doesn't take away from, uh, it doesn't take the fear away from it, but it does humanize it. And what's so scary about this film and what pushes it almost into the realm of a horror movie is that the violence is so impersonal. It's totally unaimed. Like the minds don't care who they hit. It's almost like a creature film. It's like Jaws or Tremors or even Jurassic Park. Like the minds almost operate like a force of nature. There's no rhyme or reason to who they hurt. And their point isn't to kill, it's to maim. And it's to force more people into the trap to to continue to pick off victims in a random way. And that's something I've never seen in a war film. There is really nothing glorious about the, the quote-unquote combat that these guys are in, but the reaction the soldiers have and their selfless attempts to save their friends, it's very heroic, and it all seems very real to me. And it's all the more intense because this is a true story. Did they stick to 
the facts as far as you know. Like, that's always something I have looked into when I watch something like Zero Dark Thirty or Hurt Locker or um, <laughs> what's the Tom ha- Saving Private Ryan? <laughs> that old chestnut. Yeah, well, I mean, that is a great movie, but none of those are historical films per se. They're all, uh, you know, fictionalized retelling of events that may or may not have happened. But this is, uh, from what I was able to find, they stuck very precisely to the story. So like who was so injured, this was more who like died, a Black Hawk who down. was the hero. Yeah. But even, I think even more, uh, even more precisely to the story gotcha, than Black Hawk wow. down. Cause Black Hawk down has a lot of like amalgamation characters in it. Like the best character in that film, who Eric Bana, He's like one of the Delta Force guys. It's like a guy that never existed. He's just, you know, a combination of like two or three other people and they just put them all together into this one super soldier. But this film, like there's no super soldiers. And uh, the the people, they show at the end, like kind of the fate of everyone. And from my research, it was all pretty much spot on. So they, that, I mean, that's why it's, a you know, they, they call it a docudrama because it is a dramatic film, but it is essentially telling the story like a documentary would be gotcha you know what there was a i i I tend to think that these war movies i guess you you might call them are not really in my my usual wheelhouse but now that all these memories of these this content is kind of coming to the surface um one that i really liked was uh, bradley cooper where he plays the real life sniper Oh, yeah, American Sniper. American Sniper. That was an incredible movie that really stuck with me. Yeah, I like that, too. Unbelievable story. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, there's a lot of controversy about it, too. Is there really? Well, yeah, uh, there was... I read the book, and I don't remember this story, but I've read, like, articles saying that uh, Chris Kyle, who was Bradley Cooper played, Mm -hmm. they said that... In the book, he talked about during Hurricane Katrina shooting looters from the top of the Megadome or whatever the stadium is there. And there's been all this controversy because of that. I read the book and I don't remember that story, but apparently that was like something that's kind of been plaguing that property because, you know, like if he was shooting looters during Hurricane Katrina, then that would be like a very bad thing for a you know, a American military man to be doing. Uh, yeah, but, uh, no I mean, kidding. Shooting American citizens. <laughs> I can't speak to the efficacy of that, but I've just, I've seen that a lot about that. Uh, Good Lord. I have not heard about that. that story. Wow. But that book, the, the film is awesome. Actually, I love the book too. Okay. So the, uh, the violence in this film, I think there's like different, different camps with violence. There's like the Mel Gibson extreme violence that has kind of like a Hollywood feel to it. You know, it's intense, but it feels kind of like you're watching great special effects. And then there's the Kilo 2 2 Bravo model, which feels like they actually blew people's feet off and peppered them with shrapnel, and then they just filmed it. It doesn't feel like or look like you're watching effects, even though it really is the highest form of effects. It's effects that are so good that your disbelief is just completely suspended and it gives you this uncomfortable feeling that you're looking at something real. And I think that's the difference. Uh, the difference with r- real violence is that it seems much more understated. Like, there's less fanfare associated with it. 
in movies, people like act out damage, act out the hit, huge fireballs with explosions, people get hurled through the air. And I watch a lot of real war footage, this uh, page I follow called Funker 530. And in real war footage, when people get shot, they just sometimes just drop like a sack of potatoes or explosions or just these less dramatic puffs of dust. And the damage sometimes takes a while to register. And I think that's a feel they really captured in this film. You know, this is a historic film. And like I said, from what I read, it's very accurate to the actual events. So I, I suppose if you are so inclined, you could research it ahead of time and figure out kind of where this goes. But I recommend not doing that. You know, as a as a retelling of the events, it's very terrifying. And as a film, it does a great job of building the suspense, keeps you on the edge of your seat, or in my case, you know, on the edge of my mattress laying in bed, gripping my iPhone in anticipation like a true contentologist would. <laughs> but, uh, you know... Didn't you, didn't you just buy a new, like, 78-inch plasma screen? That's for video games, uh, buddy. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, <laughs> no movies are going to grace that screen. Well, you did buy you did buy a new iPhone, so that's probably high def too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this it's very good, it's the highest quality. But yeah, the uh, so the horror movie feel and the graphic violence, and then the combination with the actual events, like this this movie, it was it was kind of hard to watch, but I'm definitely glad I watched it because it you know it really it really did something for me that no other war film ever ever did you know it really made me feel like more of an understanding of the kind of crazy scenarios these guys are going through i see a glint in your eye for some reason when you said that well i don't want to <laughs> ever experience any of those scenarios but i do appreciate the people that do those things for us all joking aside when you say it's hard to watch that terrifies me because like i <laughs> i i actually do really enjoy uh, war history. I mean, I just think it's so fascinating. And I, you know, my hope is that the more that I learn or the more that we learn collectively as a society, um, the less likely it is that we continue down this horrible, terrible uh, route that we seem to be on of committing atrocities to each other when we're all I'd basically like to think the that's same. True. We're all basically the the same uh, meat bags with slightly different accents. But yeah, um, yeah, I feel like, I feel like it's just in humanity. I you think don't violence feel is like it's something we're ever going to evolve out of. Yeah. Unfortunately, I feel like it's just part of our nature. Well, that's a optimistic take. <laughs> well, that's just, it just, if you look at history, it's, I mean, I think, isn't this the, the least warlike time that's ever existed. That's what Yuval Noah Harari argues. It is. Yeah, if you look at the big, big, big picture, we're getting less and less violent. Um, but, it, you know, there's recent events. I don't know how those factor into it. Um, but I maybe we are on a better trajectory. It, it just f doesn't feel like it when you're in the midst of some crazy shenanigans. Well, speaking of the history of warfare... You know, to understand the scope of the the problem with landmines and the problem in Afghanistan, I kind of needed to understand the history of war there. And so I kind of looked into the history of war in Afghanistan and they have been a country under siege for since before recorded history. So as far back as 300 BC, I mean, that's as far back as my research took me, but 
you know, they were invaded by the Persians, the Greeks, the Arab Caliphate, the Mongols, the Tamerlane and Mughal empires. And in modern times, all the way back to the 1800s, uh, the Sikh empire, then the British, then the Soviets in the early 1970s up to the 90s. And now us, I mean, Afghanistan is, it's like a honeypot for empires. And it's literally been at war with someone for as long as humans have been writing things down. And a huge part of that is its location. Controlling Afghanistan is vital to controlling the rest of Southern Asia or getting a passage through Central Asia. And Afghanistan was conquered by the Persians in ancient times, but in recent times, it's been bogged down in wars of attrition. You know, first with the Soviets and now us. I mean, we've been there for almost two decades. Although I did read that they are starting to roll out the uh, the pullout of Afghanistan. I, I saw that the force reduction by the U.S. has gone down 13%, which could be a promising sign. Like it seems like a good move for us to get out of there. Well, you know what? Um, that that uh, I mentioned her before, that sociologist or psychologist, uh, Michelle Gelfond, she would say all these external threats would create a tight culture, and I think that's what you have. In Afghanistan? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. It's just pulling together to band against the rest of the world, essentially. I think that the the thinking was in a world of tight versus loose cultures, uh, there, there seemed to be that correlation of like, you know, whether the threat was invasions or it was something from Mother Nature, it would create like high rigidity, um, yeah. you know, very low tolerance to any sort of breaking or uh, going outside of social norms. Um, and so that's just an interesting example of that. That is very interesting, and that totally makes sense with the way that their their history is. You know, like, unfortunately, this all left a horrible legacy on the country. Like, in the film, the soldiers say the Russians left over 10 million landmines in the country over their time there. Uh, and this, you know, that's, I mean, that's just a perfect example of what you're talking about, about just, like, oppression on your on your country. And I could, I could see how it could lead to the culture, which I think, you know, the religious culture is already pretty tight, but I could imagine it tightening down even more if you're in a place like this. I'm sure. Wow. So this film obviously got me thinking a lot about landmines. So I researched them a bit. This info comes from the human rights. Uh, it's a human rights watch paper about this problem. So Afghanistan is one of the most heavily mined places on earth. One paper I read said that, uh, there are over 724 million square meters of land that are contaminated with landmines. And despite the effort to clean them up, only two of its 29 provinces are now landmine free. And while virtually every invading force has used mines there, most are thought to have been laid by the Soviets between 1979 and 1992. And mines have been this huge obstacle in repatriating the country. In 2000, there were an estimated 88 civilian deaths per month. Like I couldn't find up-to-date stats, but it's estimated that currently those numbers could be 50 to 100% higher, although most of the casualties from landmines go unreported. And that is such a horrifying thought. I mean, when you see pictures of like little kids missing feet and stuff, like this is exactly where things like that are happening. You know, just uh, civilians walking down the road, you know, doing, going about their day-to-day lives and getting your leg blown off by a landmine. And it's such a, 
it's such a horrible legacy of war to have been left on their country. Definitely. So uh, there are two types of anti-personnel mines. There's fragmentation mines. These are things like that were used in World War II, which are basically like pressure or trip line activated grenades. When the trigger is activated, they detonate, they throw out shrapnel. So a claymore is a type of mine like this. Also, there are bounding mines, which jump up out of the ground, explode at chest level. So pure evil weapons, totally impersonal killers. But maybe more evil are blast mines. So these don't typically throw shrapnel because the main casing or anything uh, anything on top of it, rocks and dirt they're buried under, gets thrown up. But they, they mostly cause damage with the pressure wave from the explosion. And these things are designed to maim. So they are typically used as a way to slow down an advance of troops or to force a diversion of soldiers to assist, uh, assist with wounds. So these things blow off feet and legs. They draw more people in the landmine or in the, ma- the minefield, which usually results in this cascade of more casualties. And this is what the third para runs into in Kajaki. And another, uh, another weapon that has been primarily used by the Russian armies is something called the Palm II, which is a mortar-launched delivery system for anti-personnel mines. This is a completely indiscriminate way to deploy mines in the battlefield. And once these things are out there, they're almost impossible to remove. You have no idea where they're planted or even randomly landed when they're shot out of a launcher. And you can kind of get an idea for how much of a nightmare these things are for places like Afghanistan. Yeah, this is cheering me up. This is good stuff. <laughs> I can see it on your face, yeah. <laughs> so in uh, 1997, the, the Ottawa Treaty was signed by 164 countries to ban the use of anti-personnel mines and destroy other stockpiles. Unfortunately, 33 countries have not signed, including the U.S., China, and Russia. And I imagine that the majority of countries still using them. It doesn't seem like mines are going away anytime soon. Like, if the, if the three superpowers in the world are still using mines, I think the problem is probably going to keep getting worse. It just, seem, it just seems crazy to me that, like, all of this engineering and thought and money has gone into these weapons. And I, it just seems like such a, almost like a heinous act. Like, aren't wars fought, like, economically and through like nuclear deterrence now i don't know I, I it's just hard to believe people are still putting mines out there or it's they like want, a crime against humanity i think yeah because when you leave we like, agree on this yes you put mines out like okay nobody can come in here and then you leave and it's just like okay 20 years later still people getting their legs blown off coming through here it's just i mean this film was a real eye-opener for me wow but you know there is kind of like a silver lining to all these disturbing goings on in war zones. And I'd say that's the development of prosthetics. So oh God. God. I'm serious though. Like I'm sure you are, but you're, you're really to, to um, see on the bright side here. This is a bit of a stretch, but I, I, I'm picking up what you're putting down. But it's amazing the things that are happening with prosthetics now. Like cybernetic <laughs> prosthetics are no longer in the realm of sci-fi. Like that's real stuff now. And unfortunately, it is being driven by things like people losing their limbs in war zones. But really, that's how progress always works, unfortunately. Like you think about all the technological advances that came out of World War II. But, you know, war drives technology, how, like how you were saying, like it better does. ways to kill people and better ways to put them back together again. And with things like Neuralink, you know, this that kind of technology starts out as available for medical purposes. But I imagine 
it will eventually be you know evolve for consumer uh, consumption. No, and, I'm, I'm uh, pretty sure Neuralink is was designed for monkeys to play video games. Yeah, I think you're right. Actually, yeah, yeah. yeah that sounds right. Pong. That's uh, <laughs> that's what Elon Musk cares about. That and Mars. But in the uh, in the early 1900s, when prosthesis were first being pursued as a way to truly repair people who lost their limbs, there was this one guy. He was a, a, a proponent for a prosthesis. A German named George Schlesinger. He was so encouraged by the tech that he suggested that people with prosthesis were actually enhanced humans. And he was trying to convince business owners that they would be better workers. And he was trying to get people from uh, with prosthesis classified as a new type of human, homeoprostheticus. This is like oh a, real, a real push that was happening. It's like a, and, a branch of the transhumanist movement a little bit. Yeah. And I can't imagine that was all that great for the workers of the day. Because I don't think workers' rights were all that hot back then. But... Uh, this Austrian artist, Raoul Hussmann, he sarcastically predicted in the 20s that factory owners would try to exploit people with artificial limbs by instituting 24-hour workdays since the prosthetic would never get tired. So it was kind of a rough beginning. But today, we have true enhancements. They're like designer prosthetics, like beautiful diamond-encrusted floral pattern ceramic limbs and in 2019, that was the first time someone controlled an artificial limb with a brain interface. So these doctors at uh, John Hopkins installed electrodes in the brain of a patient with a C6 spinal injury. He was paralyzed from the shoulders down, and he was able to control a robotic arm with his thoughts. And that is truly revolutionary and futuristic. That's really cool. And don't forget about um, Oscar Pistorius. He he was a double amputee, and he was really good at killing his girlfriend <laughs> yes. see the mood you got me in now you did this now you've put yeah. me in a dark place brett i think that you might have be to the pull most me messed out of up here. thing we've said this entire show <laughs> um but well actually with him you do you did remember this to me do you remember when people i mean it was like the joke that was going around like people saying that he had like a, an advantage like well if you want that same advantage cut your legs off but it was really crazy seeing <laughs> what i mean those those prosthetics he had, that was something that I would expect to see from a sci-fi film. You know, it's like the type of thing where it really did seem like an enhancement. And I think that is such an awesome evolution of technology. Well, there's certainly going to, uh, it, you know, if, if you look at, if you look at prosthetic advancement as being, a um, a happy byproduct of these minds, then maybe we'll make some advances advances in the mental health segment too, because of all the PTSD and result of trauma this show. That we... Think about all the therapy you're going to get after this, Brett, and how much better you'll feel. Now, is this going to my therapy be a content clearinghouse um, business expense? Yeah, man. And uh, you write that off. And also, maybe this will encourage you to bring something lighthearted next week. I think it's a requirement now. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, to wrap this thing up, this movie almost serves as a public service announcement about the horrors of landmines. I can (laughs) honestly say I never really thought about them before watching this. And I, but I can't say that they've been disturbingly on my mind since. And I think that you will agree. It sounds like this is nothing. I've been thinking about nothing else but landmines for two weeks, but I think that's the sign of great content. Like it's something that gets under your skin and won't let go. It doesn't have to be happy. 
you know, that's not the feeling that this movie was going for, but it's something that keeps running through your mind. And that, like Pistorius. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> Just on the way to that murder he's so famous for. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and that's something that this movie has done more than any other war movie I've ever seen. Paul Caddis, the director, said that after an early screening of the film, he was expecting a strong reaction, but what happened was that the crowd just kind of got up and left in a daze, and at first he was upset, but then he found out that it was because people were so shocked by what they had just seen, and that's exactly what I felt after watching this film. I felt, like, shell-shocked. And also, when this film was viewed by the soldiers that survived this incident, they said that it was an amazing, amazingly realistic portrayal of what happened that day. Even though they knew what went down, it was difficult for them to watch, and they felt like it truly honored the sacrifices their friends made that day. So this is a, a true story of wartime heroics. It's facing the most impersonal and inhuman enemy on the battlefield, and I think that it's maybe the most disturbing war film I've ever seen, but also one of the greatest. Wow. Well, you know what, Josh? I am going to watch it. Um, I might even watch it tonight. So, uh, Kajaki, uh, what Kilo was the, two Bravo Kilo two Bravo Amazon. Okay. Yep. Um, well, I, uh, you know, I like, uh, mimes more than mines, but <laughs> here we go with the puns again, <laughs> but I really do appreciate you, um, bringing a different perspective because if it was up to me, it would just be sunshine rainbows. A couple of iPhone games and maybe some Threes, comedies. Fives, twenty forty eight. Just <laughs> we have an entire series. But thanks to you, I know that we uh, reach a whole other segment of the population. All the other fifteen listeners probably wouldn't be People here. People that like to be sad. <laughs> so thank you so much for bringing that absolutely horrifying true content uh, into into my world. I'm going to check that out. And if you out there would like to reach out to us, we have an Instagram, we have a Facebook. You can find us at the Content Clearinghouse. You can also uh, email us um, if you had to get, if you watch this film, you need to get some therapy. You can send Josh the bill, contentclearinghouse <laughs> at gmail.com. And uh, we can't wait to see you next week. Thanks for joining us. 